Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm a partner at Skybridge Capital, as well as the managing director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, the next of which we're excited to host November 14th to the 16th in Singapore. Uh, but our goal at the events and our goal on these talks is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. We're very excited today to bring the latest episode of the Salt Crypto Show, one of those big ideas that we think is changing the future, uh, with one of the co-founders of Multicoin Capital. And just a reminder that the Salt Crypto Show is brought to you by FTX. That co-founder of Multicoin Capital that I mentioned is Tushar Jain. Uh, he's also a managing partner at Multicoin, which is one of the largest and most established crypto-focused investment firms in the world. Uh, the firm manages billions of dollars across liquid and illiquid strategies in crypto markets and is known for its high-conviction thesis-driven investing. Uh, we'll let Tushar give us uh, most of the, his other background from the horse's mouth, but hosting today's talk along with me is Anthony Scaramucci, who is a founder uh, and is the managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global, global alternative investment firm. Skybridge thinks highly enough of Multicoin that we uh, have a significant investment in Multicoin funds. Uh, so with that, I will turn it over to Anthony to begin the interview. Well, not only do we think highly of you, Tushar, and your team, we're also believers in riding out the cycle and absorbing the volatility in the current situation where... The great irony is people like to buy things as they're going up, where probably the right time to be buying things is actually right now. And so I want to get there in a second. But before we go there, let's talk about your background. I think it's an amazing story. Your life story is an amazing one. So tell us a little more about your upbringing and something that most people may not know about you. Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, so I grew up in New York. Um, uh, parents were immigrants, ran a small business, uh, was always really interested in finance and technology as I was growing up, um, ended up studying finance at NYU, but realized that I didn't want to go the traditional route, you know, investment banking or management consulting or something, wanted to do something more out there. And, uh, I ended up moving to Austin and joining a startup, uh, that startup didn't work out really. So started another company in uh, the same industry, which was healthcare IT in 2013, called ePatient Finder, which used patients' medical records to help them find clinical trials and other treatment options that they may not have been aware of. But then later that year, I heard about this thing called Bitcoin, uh, and it piqued my interest. So I thought, oh, I, sh I should buy a couple to you know have some skin in the game and learn about it. So I bought a couple, literally just two. I wish I'd bought more back then. I think everyone does. Uh, and I realized that there wasn't much I could do with it then. It was just like Silk Road and like that was about it. And that wasn't for me. Uh, so put it on the shelf, said, I'll come back when we can build some more useful stuff here. Went back to building my company. Uh, then in 2016, my uh, friend and now co-founder of Multicoin, Kyle, came to me and showed me the Ethereum white paper. And that's when I started to get a lot more excited about what this technology could do. 
because what I saw was a new method of coordinating people for economic activity uh, and a new, much more scalable method. If you think about the largest employers in the world today, um, they're, they're like around a million people, a million employees-ish, you know, whether that's Walmart or USPS or uh, the army, et cetera, they're all around that scale. With this technology, I saw the ability to create organizations that had hundreds of millions of contributors or a billion contributors. And that's what was very, very exciting to me. Uh, so we ended up selling um, my other company to, to another startup here in Austin uh, called Elego Health Research. And uh, I decided to co-found Multicoin along with Kyle in May of 2017. We launched October 1st. It was a bit of a process uh, to get going. Um, and yeah, it's been a wild journey since. And something that most people would not know about me, um, I this is related to Multicoin, actually. Uh, you may notice these paintings in the back of, of a phoenix. The phoenix is also Multicoin's mascot. Uh, a lot of that is inspired by uh, my love of the idea of rebirth and these cycles. Um, and so that, that's been a major philosophy through my life is looking for cycles and looking for cyclical things. So just a few follow-ups, uh, what part of New York did you grow up in? Uh, I grew up in Astoria, Queens. Now, so you mean the Greek food was amazing, right? I mean, come on, right? you were right there and the, you were the Mecca of Greek food other than like Greece, right? Oh, it was great. Yeah. No, I mean, that's like one of my favorite places to go on Saturday nights. All right. So you grew up in Astoria. Are you a Mets fan? I was a Yankees fan. Yankees fan. You grew up in Astoria. We're going to ignore that question. You know, this would be like I was, pro you know, like you were on the witness stand. I would say, let's drop the question. I'm in too much pain. I got to turn the Yankees on and watch them in the playoffs while my team has died. Okay. I mean, it's just painful. But, but growing up in Astoria, what was your first job then? What what were you doing? Your parents had a small business, you said. So what kind of business was that? Uh, so my first job was working with my parents. Their business was a, or is a, an apparel store where they sell jackets and coats and other outerwear. In, uh, in Queens, and, in Astoria? No, that, the store is in Manhattan on the Lower East Side. I used to go there on the weekends as a kid um, because like, we didn't have babysitters or anything. We didn't have a lot of money. Right. Uh, so that, that was the place to go. And, um, it was a unique experience, I would say. Right. But so something happened, right? Something ignited an entrepreneurial fire in you. You're obviously incredibly smart person. You could have gone into a large corporation, healthcare services, given a software technology officer at one of the big oligopolistic technology firms, but you did not do that. You took an entrepreneur's path. So there had to be something in that early part of your life that sparked you to do that. What was it? Um, I would say it was a combination of two things. Uh, one is uh, just watching my parents and like how they changed their lives, showing up to the US with literally nothing and building like a good middle-class life for themselves and you know, just through hard work and seeing that you can change your life by taking control of it. Uh, and then the second was just the time period that I was growing up uh, was the 90s and the 2000s and startups are a real glorified thing. 
Um, we, we could. I, I used to follow all the venture funding rounds for all these startups when I was in high school. Um, that that was actually one of the things that Kyle and I bonded over uh, because like no one else was interested in, in, in our friend group um, in looking at uh, these startups that were being created. And I I was just fascinated. I was like, these things are going to change the world. Right. Uh, and, and I always understood the nature of asymmetry of, you know, this is a low probability bet with a enormously convex payoff. And so that's why I was always very interested in entrepreneurship. So, so I love it. You, you, and you got to the crypto space on your own. I mean, you bought a few Bitcoin just to get started. What was your entry price on Bitcoin? If you don't mind me asking. It's like 600 bucks. All right. So you got, you were very early on a relative perspective. My first Bitcoin was 16,000. Uh, my second Bitcoin, I think was like 17 or 18,000. So you got in at $600. What did you see that said, you know what? I got to own a little bit of this because, and what's the answer to that? Uh, it was just new and weird, uh, right? And I was just fascinated by how I could not categorize it. Uh, is this a monetary asset? Is it a political movement? Is it a distributed computer system? Uh, you know, what what is this? Uh, and my thought was just like, when, when you find something that's interesting across so many different fields that are all globally important, like pay attention. Uh, and so that was really my my driving force. So... So there's a lot of skeptics out there, Tushar, you know that. Uh, there's people like Jamie Dimon calls Bitcoin a decentralized uh, Ponzi scheme. Warren Buffett, I think, called it venereal disease. He once said it was rat poison squared. His older brother, who's uh, very young, 99, says it's the worst thing that's ever happened to the civilization. So you don't think that. I don't think that. Uh, so what are they missing? Uh I forget who who had this quote, um, but there, there's a really famous quote of uh, you cannot explain to someone a concept that their salary depends on them not understanding it. Right. Um, I, I may have butchered that a little bit, but you know we're talking about some of these great financiers in the traditional fiat world, um, and they're on the older side of things. They're um, you know maybe not looking at the world with the fresh eyes uh, that they once were. Uh, so I think that, you know, they're all, th these people are enormously successful. I have a lot of respect for them. I don't think they are paying attention to what is novel here. I think they're looking at what could go wrong, but what they're missing is what could go right. Uh, and that's just a, a different style of thinking. And, and, you said something that I want to really gravitate to, that this is a technology decentralized in its nature. So it's going to therefore allow for tens of millions or hundreds of millions or even perhaps billions of people to connect into it. And then so then the question is, connect into it to do what? So that's a great question. And, and I ask myself that uh, basically every day. Uh, it, it's just thinking about what can people do with this technology that wasn't previously possible? That's our core investment criteria. 
in fact, is like, they, you know, we need to invest in things that enable a new form of coordination or a new form of uh, capital formation. So I think that we're going to see a variety of things. I think, you know, the first thing that, that I think will really take off is payments. Um, I think that will likely happen with stable coins. Um, and I think that almost all payments will be done via stable coins on blockchain rails 10 years from now, almost all, including the, the small ones where I'm buying a coffee and the large ones where you're wiring, you know, nine, 10 figures uh, between major institutions. Uh, because the technology is just better. It is faster. Uh, it is more secure. It is cheaper. Um, so I think payments is, is the first thing. I think the next thing is ownership of co-created assets. So whether that is your social media assets, people have created so much value through their data for Facebook and Google and Twitter and TikTok and all of these um, social media companies, and they don't see a dime of it. And I think that that's going to change. In fact, I, I would go so far as to say, for most people in the US, the most valuable asset they have is their data. It's more valuable than their car. It's more valuable than you know their house minus the mortgage. Uh, it, it is an enormously valuable asset that is under monetized. Um, and we let these centralized companies uh, you know, own all of it. Uh, I, I also think that people will use tokens to coordinate to build new things like decentralized telecom networks or decentralized mapping networks um, where they have ownership over the end product. So, I mean, listen, it's a, it's, it's a totally fascinating thing that you're saying. It's hard for people to grasp. Um, but you're, what you're basically saying is that people can conjoin themselves over the internet uh, using blockchain technology to create companies that will compete with existing companies today, whether it's a telecom company, a social media company, uh, it, it's a variety of different companies, a bank, frankly. Uh, there's no reason why you couldn't have a decentralized operating bank um, and in some ways maybe sturdier than a centralized bank, right? What we know about centralization versus decentralization is decentralization is way sturdier. The reason why the American government has lasted 240 years, to the great surprise of many, is the nature of the checks and balances and the decentralized nature of the government, including decentralized state and local governments. So, so we know decentralization is anti-fragile. Um, yet you got the guy that wrote the book about anti-fragility, Nassim Taleb, he doesn't like it. Uh, again, back to your earlier point. These people are getting paid to hold a certain point of view. Um, but I want you to talk now to a listener uh, that tunes into these things is my age, uh, 34 years in financial services, and is a natural skeptic and has now seen a collapse. So maybe the media buzzed up the Ethereums of the world and Bitcoin, et cetera, uh, and people were looking at it and, oh, wow, it shot up a lot during a Fed-inducted liquidity bull cycle. But now these things have collapsed. They're down anywhere from 70 to 80%. Um, what would you say to that person to get them interested in what you're doing or cryptocurrencies in general? Uh, so drawdowns are painful uh, because 
you know, when you've invested capital into something, um, that's capital that you might need for something uh, in the future, right? So, so these drawdowns are painful, and I want to acknowledge that. Uh, but I also want to say that we've seen this movie before in crypto. It is extraordinary what's happening in traditional financial markets, whether it's the the bond market. I just saw a stat that said the uh, long long term. Uh, UK government bonds are down 53% uh, year to date. Incredible. I mean, like that's for a government bond, uh, right? And what you're seeing with the long duration kind of technology stocks, um, you know, kind of mirrors what you're seeing in crypto capital markets. So I think for the people who have been through some of these crypto cycles, they've realized that the bear market is the time to make the best investments. This is when the money is actually made, is in buying in bear markets and selling in the bull markets. Uh, unfortunately, most people follow herd mentality and they end up buying in the bull markets and selling in the bear markets. Uh, and so counter trading that, I think, is uh, probably the best piece of advice that I could give to uh, the person that you were describing. Okay. Um, how do you see the world shaping up over the next five years and tell us to the extent you're able to some of the investments that you've made in multi-coin uh, and why you think those are good investments and where do you think those things will be over the next three to five years? Yeah. So I, I've been thinking about what's different this bear market. It's it's very easy to just point at, oh, hey, we've been here before, like crypto has corrected 80%, you know, multiple times in the past and it's always come back. Uh, and, and so I like to ask myself, you know, not only what is the same, but what is different this time? And I think the biggest difference is that the big companies with real distribution are now paying attention and are now doing things, whether that's the Starbucks of the world or the Visas or the Stripes or the Facebooks, um, they're paying attention. And these are the entities that have you know, hundreds of millions or billions of users around the world. That wasn't true last bear market. Uh, I remember 2018, 2019 was a dark, dark time for, for crypto uh, as an industry. And you know we didn't know, like, will this come back and where will the demand come from? This time, I think the, the biggest thing that's different is we know where the demand will come from and we're seeing what is really a macro-induced liquidity collapse, uh, which is causing the, the prices to change. So I think if you zoom out and you project forward, like you're suggesting, five years from now, I'm expecting that you know we'll be in a different place in the business cycle. Uh, you know, I don't think we're entering Great Depression 2.0. Uh, so it's it's unlikely that you know we're we're down here for five years. Um, and I think that the things that will do the best in crypto will be the things that provide real utility to end users to let them do something they couldn't otherwise do. Whether that is, uh, you know, own the data created by your social media, own the telecom network, own the mapping network. Um, I, I think own the, the data that could, use, that could be used uh, to predict asset prices, where if I can see, you know, all of your social media data and all of your purchase data and your search history, perhaps I can use that to predict asset prices and create a new era hedge fund. That is actually owned by the people. Yeah, I mean, uh, there are people doing that right now. You know, they're using combination of AI and 
decentralized data collection to to come up with that, um, which I think is brilliant. Um, you did something super unique. I'm going to let Darcy talk in a second, but uh, I find you fascinating. So I'm going to go a couple more questions if you don't mind. You did something very unique in my opinion. Not only did you get into the space and things like Bitcoin and Ethereum, but you made a second derivative step or third derivative step, frankly, into things like Solana, Helium, other layer one protocols. What did you see there in things like Solana or Helium? And why did you get so aggressive in those areas? And I should point out successfully aggressive. Yeah. Uh, so really, let, let me tell the story of Solana first. Uh, when we first started Multicoin, we started, like I said, because we were inspired by Ethereum. Uh, and we saw the new things that could be built using this technology that weren't possible before. But then in late 2017, we also saw the limitations of Ethereum, where gas prices were $50 uh, to send a transaction. Uh, and that did not feel like the future of finance or the future of the internet to me, uh, where the transaction fees just price out the vast majority of people in the world can't afford to pay $50 transaction fees. Uh, and we were skeptical of Ethereum's scaling plans. You know, we dug in as much as we could. We talked to the experts and we just found that it was so complex. You know, we're reasonably competent technical people who are spending full time thinking about this stuff. Like, this feels like complexity theater almost, where, you know, very few people are able to pierce through it. And so we started looking for alternatives. And we thought, you know, what could a more scalable system look like? Then we met Anatoly, uh, the founder of Solana, and he pitched us on using his experience in the telecom industry, which built massively parallel computing to handle however many cell phones are connected to a single tower at the same time, using that type of technology, but for a blockchain. And, and his key insight was that you can parallel process transactions on chain rather than single threaded. Ethereum is a single threaded computer. It can only do one thing at a time. And the thing that really attracted us to Solana was that it's a multi-thread computer. It's just a different paradigm uh, when it comes to computation. So we led their seed round uh, and, and we basically uh, double down, triple down over the course of uh, three years or so um, from 2018 through 2021. Um, and we're, we're quite aggressive because we loved the differentiated view that they had on how the industry would evolve. Uh, and I think the best returns really come from those types of opinionated founders with a differentiated view. So Solana is gonna have some competitors, right? We have Aptos coming, the Mistim Labs project. Uh, tell me why you believe in the durability of Solana. And I should point out, and not only am I friends with Anatoly and Believe, but we own a huge chunk of Solana. We were invested in Solana through you, but we own it personally. We have it on Skybridge's balance sheet. We own Serum. I want to point that out to everybody. But I want to hear your view of why you think it has long-term sustainability and durability. Yeah. So when Solana came out, uh, new Layer 1 platforms 
were considered default dead. Everyone was like, oh, the network effects of Ethereum are insurmountable. Uh, you'll, you'll never get a platform off the ground. Um, and it kind of just rejected the, the whole idea. But Solana was literally 100x faster and cheaper than Ethereum. Uh, and that was enough to get over the activation energy required to build a real community. Uh, where there were, you know, developers building things with unique intellectual capital, right? Uh, so these are these are builders who have some industry experience outside of blockchain, and they're coming to the blockchain world because they understand what the technology could do for them. But they have, you know, a focus on a on a business outside of blockchain. It's just a tool as a part of their product, and we saw that a very high percentage of those founders were coming to Solana. Whether that was Ariel from HiveMapper, which we invested in, or now Helium is moving to Solana with, with all their telecom experience, or uh, Ben Leventhal, the founder of Resi, is building a new loyalty program on Solana, or uh, Nigel, who is the founder of uh, FanDuel, building uh, a sports betting platform on Solana. Uh, right, so so we saw these amazing, amazing builders come on. Uh, now there will be new blockchains. Uh, you know, we're expecting Aptos uh, to launch soon, uh, Mistin to launch, you know, or their blockchain SWE sometime next year probably. But the question that I have is, are they enough of an incremental improvement to actually get over the activation energy? Because there's a real network effect to a developer ecosystem. Um, and developers want to be in an ecosystem where there are great developer tools, where there are other developers, where they can use the other people's code, and it just lets them go faster. Uh, and I was there, I can tell you, it was extraordinarily difficult for Solana to get over that activation energy. And I think the only way they were able to do it is because they were literally 100x better. Uh, you know, you just have to send an Ethereum transaction and then send a Solana transaction to feel the difference. Uh, and I'm not sure that the next generation, quote unquote, of these blockchains is going to have that incremental improvement. It might have some improvement, uh, and even that is questionable. So uh, that that's where where I think the durability and the staying yeah. power really comes from. Yeah, you know, and also, you know, listen, the... Uh... There's a paradox in technology, which we both know. Um, you can get there first. The technology could be slightly clunky, but it, it gains the market share, right? Yeah, Matt Huang from Paradigm has said that repeatedly to me over the years. And good examples of that in the early tech, you know, look at Microsoft's operating system versus, say, Apple's operating system. Microsoft had an inferior operating system, but had 90 plus percent of the market share for many, many decades. Um, all right, I'm going to turn it over to John Dorsey. I have one last question. Um, I'm 100 years old, okay? I'm almost as old as Charlie Munger. Am I, is this the right thing? I mean, be my career counselor. Is this the right thing for my career to be in cryptocurrency and the blockchain? Uh, am I right or is Jamie Dimon right? Uh, I mean, I think it really depends on what you're optimizing for, right? Like if you're 100 years old and... Uh... You think right, I'm, two, another... I'm 58 too sure. I'm 58. Let's not go crazy. <laughs> Just being a little sarcastic. Okay. But I'm I'm optimizing for a great second half of my career. 
I think betting on the future is always uh, the right thing to do. I'm an optimist. I think that people will develop new technology that enables us to do amazing things, to provide for the desires and the needs of uh, the other people in the economy. Uh, and I think that the most disruptive technology, the, the most controversial technology is often the most interesting because there's a reason why you have this backlash. It's because there are very powerful interests who don't want to see decentralization. Centralization enables them to maintain tremendous amounts of power over our economy, our society, and our civilization more broadly. But I think that the internet is going to rewire our civilization. Uh, and I think it's going to happen within our lifetimes, all of us. Uh, you know, change is pretty fast now. Uh, and I think that blockchains are the first internet native entities. If you think about, you know, when was the last time we had innovation in the type of entities that exist? It, you know, it, it was probably the advent of the corporation or the limited liability uh, company back in, you know, the late 1400s in Europe. Uh, and that was right after the printing press where you could actually write down what everyone owned and you could keep track of it and have decentralized or have records being kept in, in all these places. And that allowed for a new level of business that could not exist before. And now we have the internet, which is just as big of a breakthrough as the printing press. And I think blockchains are the internet native entity. I mean, it's really well said. John Darcy, what do you have to add here? I want to talk a little bit more about proof of physical work, uh, which I believe is a coin, uh, a term that multi-coin coined. You've written a lot about it, and I thought it was fascinating. And sort of proof of physical work, and you can explain it better than I can, but it's things like Helium, things like HiveMapper, where there's uh, in the physical world, there's manifestations of this incentive alignment that you create uh, with people that are able to do the job that a centralized corporation might have done previously, ranging from telecom to up-to-date maps. Um, and there's a utility token that's attached to these platforms that incentivize people to go out and, and perform this job that uh, creates this great service. So could you talk about why you think that's such a transformative idea, different applications for that that exist that you guys have invested in today and that you think might exist in the future? And just about how to manage sort of the tokenomics around um, those types of projects in such a way that they're not, you know, immediately at the beginning of the process, very valuable and then become less valuable, but just create a long-term healthy ecosystem for the tokens involved in that incentive structure. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I, I would start it off by just like saying how I think about the proof of physical work thesis. It, it's actually remarkably simple. The thesis is that you can pay people with tokens that represent ownership in a protocol to do useful stuff. And, and, and that's it. That's, that's the broad thesis, that you can give people ownership to do useful stuff. Um, this was really inspired by you know, watching uh, some of these play-to-earn games. Uh, you may remember last year, there was a game called Axie Infinity that got really popular. They raised a ton of money. And they were basically paying you in tokens to uh, you know, battle these little digital creatures with each other. Uh, 
honestly wasn't even that fun. Uh, it, it felt more like solving captchas than playing Pokemon to me, but uh, it went crazy. Uh, and, you know, I think at some point, a significant proportion of like the population of the Philippines was playing this game. Uh, and it, it was a worldwide phenomenon. And I, and I got to thinking like, well, what if instead of battling these little digital creatures, we were doing something useful, uh, right? Uh, what if we were building a decentralized telecommunications network? Or what if we were building uh, a mapping network that was always up to date? Um, let, let, let me touch on, on those two. Those are both multi-coin portfolio companies that are under this thesis that I'm quite excited about. Um, I think, you know, if you look at the telecom industry, uh, it's a massively capital intensive industry because they have to pay rent to put up all these radios all around the country. And they have to pay for the employees to maintain and manage all of that infrastructure. And that's very capital intensive. With a blockchain powered model like Helium, you can invert that and have regular people like you and me go and take a consumer grade device, go put it up in their window and start creating wireless coverage for their neighborhood or put it up in their business and start creating wireless coverage there. Uh, and this has no rent and no employees. So it's just a dramatically lower cost structure and is able to offer services much less expensively. Uh, the same thing is true on the mapping side. If you've ever seen one of those cars, those Google cars driving around with like the big fancy uh, camera on top, uh, those things cost like half a million bucks fully loaded. Uh, and you have to pay the person who's driving the car. Uh, so these are very expensive. And the refresh rate of Google Maps is quite low. Uh, it's low even in places like New York or San Francisco that are you know, major world cities in the United States. Uh, but if you go to Lagos or Manila or Jakarta, uh, they don't refresh the maps. And those, country, those cities are seeing so much construction uh, and they're seeing you know, just so much growth. And the people there want to participate in things like e-commerce. You can't really do e-commerce without maps that let the delivery person know where you are, um, right? It doesn't work. And so uh, we invested in a company called HiveMapper, which lets regular people put a dash cam, a consumer grade dash cam in their car and upload the footage to uh, a, a system that uses computer vision to generate an always up-to-date street map. So not only is it cheaper uh, to create this map, it's also a fresher, better map. And so those are the kinds of things that we look for in this proof of physical work thesis. And so getting back to the tokenomics piece, you talked about Axie Infinity it is a great example of it where, uh, as you mentioned, people across the Philippines and Southeast Asia uh, were quitting their jobs, whatever they might be. You know, usually they were low income jobs. And so it wasn't like they were giving up, um, you know, C-suite jobs in, in some major company, but it was becoming a career for a lot of people. And then the there was the hack and, and um, there's been other situations with other utility tokens built around sort of real world proof of physical work applications that, um, you know, the, the value of the tokens has gotten to the point where it wasn't quite as worthwhile for someone to participate um, in sort of the building of these ecosystems. So is, is there best practices that you guys study around utility tokens and how to create sustainability of, of tokenomics? Uh, so this is something we've thought about quite a bit. 
Uh, I think the most important thing is that there needs to be organic demand for the token. Um, that can come from, you know, burning the token to pay for data transfer or, you know, paying with the token to query the map API or, you know, something like that, right? You need to have some organic demand for the token. I think the systems that fail are the ones that rely on speculators to buy the token. Uh, because yes, you can get speculators really excited for a short while, but they're speculators. They're going to go and take profits. Uh, and you know they're not customers. Uh, they're not going to keep on putting capital into the system because they're getting some productive use out of it. Uh, and so with speculators, what goes in must come out. Uh, with customers, they're actually getting utility. So I think the most important factor for token design is real utility that creates real demand for the token. Uh, and unfortunately, that's not something that most projects have. It's, it's actually quite rare. Right. You mentioned earlier uh, decentralized sports betting. And when I first stumbled across BetDex, which Nigel Eccles, who you mentioned before, founded, it was a really fascinating use case. And I thought a really good uh, illustrative company uh, when it comes to the utility of blockchain technology, which the promise for me is really the disintermediation of finance. And there's also other disintermediation opportunities out there uh, within the economy that I think accretes value to the consumer and the user and, and maybe uh, removes value from certain toll takers. But we think that's a positive thing. Overall, BetDex, I think, is a it's an interesting use case where you know, usually you have the house when you're when you're gambling and you're betting against the house, but in a decentralized, uh, almost peer-to-peer -peer sports betting protocol, it's a little bit different. Could you talk about what the the value proposition is with a, a decentralized sports betting application like that, and how it might be emblematic of, of sort of blockchain use case for disintermediation uh, more widely? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so. Nigel's key insight that got us really excited was that there was no place for the house to clear risk with other houses uh, you know, in a gambling sense. So if you know I'm running a, a gambling book and all of my clients want to go one way, I have to take the other side of that. And it's not easy to go hedge that out anywhere. Uh, and if I go try to trade on someone else's platform, well, now I have to trust them. Uh, and so th there's a major trust problem. Uh, the other big insight was that there's no visibility into the depth of these markets. Uh, you know, you can see the betting line uh, on the screen, but you don't see, okay, well, what if we pushed a larger amount of money into it? Like, how does the price change? What is the slippage? You just don't have that transparency for the order book there. And so... This is something that blockchain-based products really excel in, is providing trust minimization. You're not trusting anyone uh, to follow the rules. The rules are written there in code. Um, and in providing transparency, because everything is open source. All the data is on-chain. Anyone can see it and uh, you know, create their own interface, display the data however they, they would like in order to serve their customers. And so that's what got us really excited about Betex was those two things the transparency and the trust minimized place for uh, sports gamblers to be able to clear risk. Uh, and, and I think the first users will likely be, you know, some of these big gambling houses 
that want to clear risk with each other in a trust minimized way. And then, you know, I hope to see retail show up and start gambling uh, on these platforms as well, uh, which will have lower take rates and just be more fair and a better deal for them. I want to talk about one more portfolio company, and it's a company by the name of FTX. So uh, just disclosure, we're investors in FTX, um, multi-coiner investors in FTX. I think it's fair to say we're big believers in the future of the company. What do you think is unique to the culture, unique to the leadership, uh, unique to sort of the machine that's built at FTX relative to other players in the marketplace? That's not to degrade other exchanges that have been built. But FTX has done it a little bit differently than others, where uh, they have a much leaner team. Uh, they sort of iterate and, and expand, grow new product lines more quickly, sort of a build things and then fix them type of mentality. But what, what are the things that you've observed with that team that first made you excited about investing into Sam and the FTX team and, and why you think they will continue to excel in the marketplace? It's all culture, uh, honestly. Uh, I, I think... When it comes to markets like you know exchanges or other large and obvious markets, uh, strategy is not as important as culture because culture really drives how the organization works. And I think culture is the most important attribute there. And culture comes from the top. Culture comes at FTX from Sam. Uh, and Sam is a truly exceptional human being. Um, you know, he's one of the hardest working people I've ever seen. Uh, and I think that they're not only very ambitious uh, in, in what they want to accomplish, but they're also trying to do things the right way, in a scalable way, in a way that others will be able to get on board, right? We know where they're headquartered, for example. You can't say that about all of the other big crypto exchanges. Where are they headquartered, um, right? Uh, we know that they're engaging with regulators. I can't necessarily say that for some of the other crypto exchanges. And then for the for the ones, you know, based in the US, uh, you know, they're just often moving too slowly. They're not taking the big ambitious bets. Uh, you know, for example, FTX has this application out uh, in front of the CFTC um, to be able to trade futures, in, uh, crypto futures in the US. Uh, it is the first proposal uh, that propose that uses the risk engines that were developed for crypto trading to bring to the futures market. Uh, it's the first real innovation in the futures market infrastructure in decades. Um, and, and so like that's the kind of ambition, the big audacious bets that really are driven by that culture of ambition, but they're doing things the right way and in a compliant way and you know working with the relevant stakeholders, not just ignoring them. Well, Tushar, it's been a pleasure to have you on Salt Talks. Uh, we extremely uh, value the partnership that we have with Multicoin. It was great to have you participate at Salt uh, in September. And don't let them, don't let them off, the, Darcy. <laughs> don't let them off the hook. I want to. I got to throw some prediction All right, questions. You, you go ahead. Follow up. I thought you had your moment. In this time. All right. Okay, Tushar. Five years from now, am I okay? I mean, I'm I'm long. FTX. FTX is long me. I'm long uh, an asset management company called Multicoin. I'm long Solana, Helium, Bitcoin. Uh, am I okay? Yes, I think so. I, I mean, 
Look, you have to bet that five years from now, the macroeconomic climate will be different. Otherwise, you know, if it just keeps getting worse, then the only real store of value is ammunitions and canned food, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm really hoping that we don't end up in that version of the world. Don't start an ammunition and canned food fund, by the way. But, but you're you're basically telling me I'm okay. Is that correct? I think so. Five years is a long time, and we're seeing more innovation in this industry now than we've ever seen before. And and really, the thing to pay attention to is the flow of talent. It's the people who are moving from the financial services industry or from traditional web two companies coming over to the blockchain industry. No one's going in the opposite direction. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other thing I would say to you is that the product is just better. You know, uh, you know John and I had a chance to sit with Anatoly last week in San Francisco and just to understand the peer-to-peer transaction ability of what could take place on Solana, it's infinitely better than the old school traditional financial mechanisms that we've been using. And so I have found in my life that when products are better, uh, they get adopted. You know, there were a lot of people that said that the horseless carriage was a fad and that the horse and buggy would be with us forever. But it turned out that the horse got tired after eight or nine hours out there clomping around, you know, and the car turned out to be a better product. And so we're back there again. Remember, Bill Gates said the internet was a fad. Uh, I heard him say it. It was at a Goldman Sachs technology conference in the mid-90s. Of course, he had a reverse course. He's a brilliant guy. And so, hey, I got that wrong. He reversed course and built a big internet business for himself. Um, But I do think you're on the right track. I am very proud to be an investor of yours. Um, And I am going to be looking after you, as I know you're going to be looking after me too, Shar. I enjoy our partnership, and I want to thank you for being on Salt Talks. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, we also very much value the partnership. Thank you for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. All right. Anthony's uh, parting words were a lot more uh, eloquent than mine. So it's great to have you on. Oh, too. Shut up. They, you. Weren't, they weren't eloquent. I'm just interrupting him. I want to get I wanna, He's got a big brain. I'm trying to pull stuff out of his brain. That's fair. Um, but great to have you on. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We love. Uh, having you participate on these SALT talks and, and learn from what we think are some of the leading uh, thinkers in the space. Multicoin, one of the earliest and best investors, we think, uh, in the cryptocurrency market. So uh, great to, to teach our community about, about the way they're thinking about things. Uh, just a reminder, if you missed any part of this episode, you can access it on demand on our website. It's salt.org backslash talks on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube or anywhere that you consume podcasts, you can listen to this in audio form. Uh, We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. And on behalf of Anthony and the entire Salt team, this is John Darcy signing off for today. We hope to see you back here again soon. 